this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an award-winning investigative journalist, editor and reporter at Tortoise Media in the UK. His book, A Death in Malta, An Assassination and a Family's Quest for Justice, tells the story of his mother's politically motivated murder and the subsequent investigation. It's been listed amongst the top 100 books of 2023, and I can testify that it is absolutely brilliant. Paul Caruana Galizia, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much for having me. This book is obviously written from a deep place of love. It's about your mother, Daphne. Mm. And of course, we all remember what happened, but you're going to talk us through the story. And it's more than just telling us what happened. It's a fight for justice. It's a cry against political corruption globally. Mm. But it's also beautifully written. It sometimes feels like a, a thriller, a love letter. It just, it reached me on so many levels. And I just wanted to thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. That's really kind. Uh, it also made me realise that I knew absolutely nothing about Malta. Yes. <laughs> In common, I'm sure, with quite a lot of people. Yes. And you actually start there. You start mm. with the history of Malta. So tell us about your country. So the funny thing is, when I when I first started on the book, I almost didn't want to write about the country in the way that I imagine people from other small countries feel. You get tired of having to explain its history, its language, and so on. But um, one of my editors said, no, the country is, is a character in this book. For people who aren't familiar with it, it is very interesting. And so I began to try to make a virtue of it. So Malta is the European Union's smallest member state. It was until 1964 a British colony. Growing up, when I was growing up there, it was intensely Catholic, less so now. It was a very divided population by class, language, and above all, people were split into supporting two very powerful political parties. And those parties, along with the church, really crowded out any any sense of civil society, which really matters for the story. Um, again, it's a small place. When I grew up there, the population was between three and 400,000 people. It's maybe double that now. But that's a very recent change. And... It's sunny, it's in the Mediterranean. It's sunny, it's in the Mediterranean. It's beautiful, it. yeah. I should say I should say that. <laughs> it's a be- it's beautiful. It's it's really a group. It's an archipelago of limestone islands, which in geological terms are very young. And it looks beautiful. It's the shape of a fish and it's very rugged. It's got this kind of Garig landscape. Um it's a lot like the south of France, a lot like Italy. When I look at Cezanne's paintings, there was a big exhibition here recently. It's a lot like that. I feel like that's Malta. Yeah, and it has a lot to do with southern Italy, doesn't it? It does. So purely because of its proximity to Sicily, there's been a lot of cultural exchange over many years. And there was a generation, so my grandfather's generation even, would speak Italian at home. Italian was used as the official or one of the official languages of the country until it was a British policy 
to force Italian out and promote Maltese, which is a Semitic language, unusually. Can you give me an example of it? So the numbers are exactly like Arabic. A book like in Arabic is Ktip. Interestingly, when Malta became Christian, we retained a lot of the Arabic religious words. So we use Allah for God. Randan is Lent. Christmas is Ilmilit, so like the birth of Muhammad, Maulit. And so it's it's really unusual. It's a really unusual language and speaks to the strange history that Malta had of being colonised so many times by so many different powers. So when it came to the book, again, I, I never set out to do it like this, but then I thought, this is the story of my mother. My mother was born two weeks before the colonisation in 1964, my father about eight years before it. And I I thought because of that coincidence of her birth and, and independence that you can you can really tell the story of her and the country. In fact, you have to. And the kind of arc, the tragic arc of her life is really the country's as well. Mm-hmm. That around independence, there was all this optimism and the country made itself promises of being free and prosperous and that it would have its own identity and it would remain this pro-Western, open country. And for for the 60s, it looked like that might happen. And then in 71, as was the fashion globally at the time, we elected a, a very socialist government um, that began turning the country away from the world. So it began restricting imports, um, instituting really high quotas um, or, or really high tariffs. And that was my mother's childhood, the 70s. You know, So she grew up in a country where only one brand of chocolate was available, only one kind of toothpaste, no variety in clothes. But then at the same time, because we were a colony, people kind of kept this access to British media. So they they followed what was happening in the UK, subscribed to British newspapers and magazines. And through that, my mother had access to the world outside and began asking at quite an early age why, why Malta is the way it is, so closed and conservative, and other people seem to, to live very differently. And... She began asking those questions, you know, why Why do they live like that and we don't? Why are there newspapers like this? And that was a really, really conservative, no bylines, really impersonal writing. And I, I think that's where the idea of a career in journalism really took root. Mm. Before we get into that, I just want you to just briefly tell us the political landscape. You yes. you, you talked about these two big parties, and I think mm. it would be helpful to understand. Sure. So the two parties are the Labour Party and the Nationalist Party. The Nationalist Party got its name because it was an anti-British party in colonial times and was initially close to Italy and then kind of swapped during World War Two, really, when you know, Mussolini was bombing Malta, became impossible to maintain that allegiance and simply became a kind of Christian Democrat, centre-right political party. The Labour Party is, as the name suggests, was the Workers' Party. 
And that was the party in power in the 70s. And of course, this was the Cold War. And the prime minister at the time, Don Mintoff, decided Malta should turn um, east, so build alliances with what was then the Soviet Union, China, Libya under Gaddafi. And he made the country more hostile to its former allies like NATO, Britain, of course. And he was, or his party was in power through the 70s up until the mid-80s when we had a really crucial election, so late 80s actually, when people started at least imagining the end of the Soviet Union and the spread of liberal democracy around the world. So it was Malta's kind of end of history moment. And the Nationalist Party won that election and began turning the country westwards again. And part of that involved Malta's accession to the European Union, which is something my mother really wanted. So something she saw as almost a silver bullet for Malta's problems of governance, human rights abuses. So in the 70s and 80s, we had really serious political violence, rioting. And And she, in fact, was arrested. She was arrested in a protest in 84 when she was 19 years old. So it was a protest over the government's closure of church schools or independent schools. And, of course, she had finished her schooling by then, but her sisters were locked out of school. Her parents, my maternal grandparents, were among a large group of parents who had to organise secret lessons for their children. Anyway, she went to this protest with a friend and was beaten up by a police officer and later arrested and charged with assaulting the police officer herself, along with a lot of other charges. She was acquitted, but it, it really marked her, that experience. And according to one of her friends who I spoke to for the book, is what made her so determined. This very personal experience of the power of a state just coming down on you, the very physical part of it, that a police officer punched you and had to be dragged off you by a number of other police officers, that she was held in a cell overnight without access to a lawyer, her parents or anyone, that she was stripped search unnecessarily and charged, right, and had to go through criminal proceedings for months until she was finally acquitted. And I think in that experience, she said to herself, I don't want I don't want to experience anything like this again. I don't want to live in a country where this happens again. And she began thinking of ways to fight it. It's hard to believe, but... <laughs> She was a very shy person, actually, and like a lot of shy people, she felt more comfortable expressing herself in writing. And because she had that background of reading quite widely in the late 80s, so soon after I was born, in 88, she began pitching around to write and work on magazines. And I mean, what she really did was sort of reinvent the way journalism was done in Malta because for a start, there hadn't been a female columnist. Yes. Uh, there were no bylines. Yes. Uh, and she changed all that and just did become, throughout your childhood and beyond, this amazing campaigning journalist. Yes. 
Now, you tell wonderful stories about her sort of taking you and your two brothers mm. along to work with her. And, and yes. Just one really gets a feel of, of your family life. Yes. But of course, there was this other Daphne who was this huge mm. campaigner. Yes. So that's right. So she had us, by the time she was in her mid-twenties, she had us three boys and had started working in journalism again, 88, 89 And by 1990, she got a column with the Sunday Times of Malta. So she was the first woman to write a column, as you said. Within a few months, she persuaded her editor that she should use her her byline on the column. So she was then the first columnist to write under their own name. So the first woman to write a column and the first columnist. And um, yes, we were always with her. Of course, this is before email, so I remember she would she would write out her columns at home and then have to drop them off at the Sunday at the Times building. Later, she would use a fax machine. But we were always with her. She'd take us to school, pick us up from school. And quite early on, the kind of journalism started coming home to us. So in, in 94... She would do a bit of reporting, not just the columns. And in 94, I'd say she had her first really big story where she reported on a drug trafficker whose father headed the armed forces of Maltan, so was responsible for, for controlling trafficking. Anyway, it was during that period where after she picked us up from school and brought us home, we found our, our dog, a border collie we called Messalina, lying across our doorstep in a pool of her blood. And obviously it was a horrible sight and I can still picture it perfectly. And my mother told us, no, don't don't worry, Miss Alina, just had some snail poison, which is something that had happened with another dog we had. And um, it was only until much later that I, I realised the obvious, that someone had slit her throat. And it was also around that time we had the first arson attack on our house, so... Our wooden front door went up in flames one evening when we were all inside. And my mother told us, don't worry about it. I just dropped a lit candle against it. And, you know, I was six, seven years old at the time. So you you believe that, mm-hmm. you know. And, and much of our childhood was like that. I both kind of worlds seemed to exist or we seemed to live in both worlds. Another thing she used to do was take us out of school during term time and take us to Gozo, the other bigger island, smaller island to Malta. And it's really a summer place. At the time, it was also very rural. Very few people would go there in winter. And and I always thought, you know, it is strange that we do go there when it's not summer, and especially during term time. But I, I again, I later realised it was during periods where she felt very unsafe at home, so she'd want us away from the house. What was the story that she was reporting on that led to her eventual assassination? So in the last five years of her life, the focus of her reporting became political corruption. So we, we always had a problem with corruption in Malta. So, the, so bribery, kickbacks. But it was always very low level, in large part because the population was small, the economy was small. Then the country globalised and became actually quite prosperous or a lot of people did very well. And in 2013, again, the Labour Party returned to power 
And the Prime Minister, Joseph Muscat, kind of sold himself as a Blairite leader. You know, he would he would do a bit of privatization, deregulate the economy. And that, and that started happening. And, you know, one of the first stories she broke was that the government was about to start selling our passports. And these are EU passports, obviously. And there were these really big privatization projects. So of our hospital, our healthcare sector, our energy sector, there were very big infrastructure projects. And she reported on those. And there were a lot of, a lot of really serious allegations she reported. But in the end, the story that mattered was this. So in February 2016, she was working on the Panama Papers, this enormous leak of data from a Panamanian law firm called Mossack Fonseca, which for years had set up offshore companies, who, whoever wanted them. Through that leak, my mother found that the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff and the Energy Minister, who was also responsible for privatization projects, had, within a week of being elected, acquired two Panama companies. So the exact same setup, a Panama company sheltered by a trust, and they both set those companies up using the same accountants again, both within a week of, of being elected to government. And because the leak provided data on, on beneficial ownership, which is almost impossible, right, unless you have a leak, you will never know who owns these companies, she was able to report this simple fact that the energy minister and prime minister's chief of staff have these companies. So this was the start of 2016. There were protests, really, actually, for more than big protests, but no other response, no apparent police investigation, no judicial inquiry, nothing. So this really ugly war between the government and my mother intensified. So there was nothing standing between her and them, right? She couldn't say the police are now investigating because they weren't. And for a year, we just continued like that. The country knew that two of the most powerful men in the country owned these companies. Nothing was happening, nothing was done about it. The prime minister was defending them. And then it was exactly a year later, so February 2017, that my mother reported on a tip she had received about a third offshore company, this time one registered in the United Arab Emirates called 17 Black. And for the next few months, she worked very hard to try to uncover the owner of 17 Black, which didn't feature in, in the Panama Papers leak. Until, of course, in October 2017, she was murdered. And I think none of us appreciated the significance of her report on 17 Black until, again, there's this weird symmetry, a year, a year after her murder... A group of journalists who followed up on her work uncovered the owner of 17 Black, a man called Jorgen Fenech, who won this enormous energy privatization contract. And it appears that the scheme was these two officials with the Panama companies awarded him the contract and he then kicked back some of the proceeds of that contract to them via his company to theirs. 
And it was, again, a, a year after that report where Fenwick was named as the owner of 17 Black that he was arrested on suspicion of, of her murder. She was blown up in a car bomb. Mm. How did you hear about her death? I was in London and it was 2pm UK time and I, I kept getting a call. I kept getting calls from a Maltese number I didn't recognise. And when that happens, I, I don't answer and then wait for a voicemail or a message. But then my aunt, my maternal aunt, Cora, called me and, and told me, it's Matthew who's, who's trying to get through to you. And and so I picked up and I I I knew it would be something serious because he wouldn't he wouldn't have called in that way and Cora wouldn't have called. And I I went I was at work, I went into a a different room to my colleagues and I said I answered his call, I said, Hi Matt, what happened? And he said, There was a bomb in her car and I don't think she made it. Um you need to come home now. And I, it was a strange feeling. I really felt like things had slowed down to a point where it was like there were these enormous gaps between every one of his words. And then I felt myself almost like drift outside myself. So I was looking at myself from, from the ceiling of this room, listening to my eldest brother tell me our mother had been killed. I couldn't think of a way of responding, so I just said, what do I do, what do I do? He said, you need to come home now. And I cycled home from west to south London. It was a really strange day as well. So this is the 16th of October 2017, and a hurricane called Ophelia had reached London, and it, it kind of blew dust into the city, and the sky had this really strange colour. It was like purpley red. Everything was strange about that day. And anyway, I, I made it home. But the next flight home wasn't until half eight. Anyway, I finally made it home that night and my father and brothers picked me up. And I remember there's really one road leading into our where we grew up, Benia. And my father telling me, listen, as we were approaching Benia, he said... The valley is just covered in soldiers and police officers and there are floodlights everywhere, so just be ready for it. Because this is, of course, a valley where, we, you know, we grew up, we used to play in the fields. And and then we went home and it was odd. Even the dogs, who are normally really excitable and jump up when, when someone comes home, were just lying around. I remember almost expecting to hear my mother typing because she used to work at the dining room table. But there was nothing and these homicide detectives came home, interviewed us. Uh, but it was it was Matthew who was at home with her. So Matthew was working alongside her at that dining room table. And it was 3pm Malta time, so we're an hour ahead here. And she said, I need to leave the house to go to a bank. She had just posted something to her blog about the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, as it happened, and didn't make it very far out of the house at all because, you know, within five minutes, Matthew heard and felt an explosion. It's powerful and close enough that it shook the windows and doors of the house. He went running out and saw smoke coming up from one of the fields, 
and then ran closer to it and then saw what he called a fireball. Then ran even closer, recognised her number plate and then ran around the car trying to rescue her. But of course he knew it was hopeless and first two young police officers arrived and then slowly doctors and soldiers and all the rest of them. Paul, since then you and your brothers have campaigned tirelessly. Where are you now in your quest for justice and how is Malta in terms of its corruption? So the three hitmen have all pleaded guilty now and are serving prison sentences. A middleman confessed to his role in the murder and received a pardon for it. Fennec is awaiting a jury trial for his role in the murder. There are another three men who are awaiting a jury trial for supplying the bomb that was used to kill her. But not a single person has been prosecuted over the corruption my mother revealed. So there have been no prosecutions over the Panama Papers, 17 Black, the energy contract, to say nothing of all her other stories. One of the outcomes of our campaign was Malta's first ever public inquiry. That inquiry reported two years ago and found that the state was responsible for her death because it failed to notice and act on the obvious threats to her life and found that Malta was on its way, the report said, to becoming an entrenched mafia state. But it was my mother's murder and all the campaigning that happened afterwards that kind of steered it away from going further down that path. But not a single one of the public inquiries, many recommendations for constitutional reform in Malta has been implemented. And so journalists working in Malta face a lot of the same risks. I think a really important test for the country is whether it can implement those recommendations and whether it can bring some of the most senior political figures in the country to justice over all that corruption reporting. I think one really good change, which I want to mention, is the development of civil society in Malta. So I mentioned at the start that was always crowded out by these very two powerful parties and earlier on by the church. So on the day of her murder, a group of women got together and they called themselves Occupy Justice and began camping outside the Prime Minister's office. That campaigning group is still around. There have been other groups that have formed and have campaigned for the rule of law and democracy in Malta. And those are the really kind of fundamental changes you want to see in the country. And that shows this wasn't wasn't just a personal tragedy for me and my brothers and my father, but that the country is an injured party as well. Well, her legacy very clearly lives on because you've inherited her writing talent. Oh, thank you so much. This is such a beautiful book. It's a really, really important story and it's one that we should all be aware of and never forget. Paul, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. That's Paul Caruana Galizia. His book is A Death in Malta, an Assassination and a Family's Quest for Justice. It's published by Heinemann. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Tamsin Howard, Mariella Bevan and Naomi Ekwe. 
You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.